Our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, which can be found on page 556 in your pew Bibles or 1066 in large print. Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7. We've already been talking about vines and branches um, so far this morning. Get a little bit more of that as we go. Before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made, and God, we do thank you for not only creating us, but creating us with a purpose. And God, we ask that uh, that you would fulfill your purposes in us, that you would keep us close to Jesus, that we would know uh, know what it is to have life and to have joy and to have peace and to have love, the kind of love that you have had for us, that we would have it for you and for others. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7. It says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now, you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah. And the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Turning then to First John, chapter 4. We just saw there in Isaiah, kind of that negative example of how things are not supposed to be. So we go to First John, chapter 4, verses 7 to 21. It's a little different. Uh, this can be found on page 988 in the Pew Bibles and 1902 in the large print. <clears throat> First John 4, excuse me, 7 to 21. As dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit and we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. 
If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world... Sorry, I got confused there. Back up a little bit. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God is in them. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Well, there's a pretty clear contrast there, isn't there? Between what we read in Isaiah of God preparing his people as a vineyard, preparing them to do uh, good things, to live the right way, to show mercy and compassion and justice and righteousness, and yet, what he got was the opposite. But then we have in uh, 1 John, we see how things are supposed to be. If we are actually in God, it wasn't enough for the people of Israel to just be a part of the nation of Israel and live any old way they wanted to. It was a matter of being connected to God, the one who is the giver of life and the one who defines its purpose and the one who, through whom life has meaning and purpose at all. And he said, if you live a life inconsistent with the character of God, if you live your life uh, completely opposed to God and his ways, then you can't say, well, but we're you know, in the right family. We have the right membership card. Says, no, that's not what this is about. This is about a life with God. And as we saw from Isaiah, that meant the vine should be producing the right kind of fruit because it's really connected to the source of life. And we see in 1 John that what that means to be connected to the God of love is to be people of love. Now, in John chapter 15, where we're going today, We have uh, Jesus talking to his disciples. We've been looking at who Jesus is. And uh, not who do do you think he is, or who do you think he is, or who does somebody else think he is, but who does Jesus say that he is? When he's talking to the disciples, when he's talking to the crowds, who does he identify himself to be? And we have seven different statements in the book of John. We've covered two of them so far already, where he said to Martha at the grave of Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. And then we saw that he was talking to his disciples and said to Thomas, who said, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And today we're a little farther on on that same night, The same night that he says, I'm the way, the truth, and life. It's the night before he dies. And he knows that he's going to die. 
And because he knows he's not going to see them again for a while, he's not going to have any more time to talk to them for a while, not until he raises from the dead. We have in John, if you uh, take a look, uh, chapters 13 through 17, I believe, we have an extended conversation between Jesus and his disciples, kind of this last final words, let me tell you what's most important. Don't forget these things. Before he goes to the cross. Now, I'm getting ready to leave for a few weeks. I hope this is not my last sermon. But I kind of figure every week it could be my last sermon. And at some point, I will preach my last sermon. And at some point, you will hear your last sermon, whether from me or from someone else. And we don't ever know when that's going to be. For Jesus, he knew this was the last time. And this was to be the important stuff. (laughs) Hear this and hear it well. If Jesus thinks this is important stuff, we got to think it's pretty important stuff too. And so uh, my prayer is that we would hear this and hear it well. Jesus says, I am the true vine. Now keep in mind, they know this passage from Isaiah about Israel being the vine but the vine that did not produce the right kind of fruit. Jesus, on the other hand, says, I am the true vine, the one who actually produces the right kind of fruit. This is the kind of life that God has wanted his people to live from the very beginning, and nobody's done it. But he said, I am the true vine. My father, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken unto you. Remain in me, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. This is my command. Love each other.
And that's where we're going to stop. Although, in this entire uh, night's conversation that Jesus has with his disciples, it's difficult to find a good stopping place. Because it's all good. But this passage right here, these 17 verses, have a lot to say about the big picture of what it means to really be, uh, to really be human, to really be the people that God has created us to be, to live the lives that He's created us to live. In the, um, we know that question one of the Westminster Catechism: What is uh, the chief end of man? It's kind of a weird way of saying it, I think. What is the chief end of man? I would, I would say rather, what is the goal of life? What is the goal of life? What's it all about? What is it we supposed to be trying for? And the answer is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now this is not a universally accepted statement. There are plenty of people that we can find in the culture today who would say, if pressed, no. The, the goal of life is to get as much stuff as you can before you die. That's the goal. That's what I'm going to try to do. Or the goal of life is to just have fun while it lasts. You only go around once, so live it up. That's the goal of life. As many moments of fun as you can pack in to however many years you're on this planet, go for it. That's the goal. There are so many different goals that people have for what they feel like is the goal of life, the chief end, the purpose of life. Even if it's never stated, that's where we're headed. That's where we're going, chasing after these kind of goals. But, the Bible tells us repeatedly, going after those things, you end up bankrupt. You end up with a life of frustration because you didn't live the life you were created to live. And like the vine that was created to bear fruit, your life did not bear any fruit. And it is thrown away, and it withers, and such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. That is not the life that God wants for his people. What he wants is a life that bears fruit. Fruit that will last. Jesus says, that's actually why I called you. That's why I appointed you. I chose you. That was not the way that it happened back then. Right? Normally, if people were going to follow a, a rabbi, if disciples were going to you know, be your disciple, you would go find a rabbi that you wanted to follow and say, hey, can I apply to your uh, school of theology kind of thing? I, you, know, you choose your school. That's not the way it was. Jesus says, I chose you. But I didn't choose you because you somehow were better than everybody else. And so because you were better than everybody else, I chose you. And now you can kind of sit there like the first person picked on the soccer kickball team or something at recess and look down at everybody else not picked yet and be like, I've been picked and you haven't because I am the best kickball player around. No. In fact, as Paul tells the church in Corinth, he says, think about what some of you were when you were called. When he called us, he didn't call us because we deserve to be called. He called us because he loved us and he has a purpose for us. And we can't fulfill that purpose apart from him. And so he has um, called us for that. Okay, so if... <clears throat> I have some notes here today because I cannot hold all of this in my head today. There's too much. You will see. And you don't need to get all the details of where we're going with all this, but I want you to follow the flow of all of it, so you see how it all ties together. Because there's a lot. If the goal of life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, I hope by now we've seen that how we do that is by bearing fruit in our lives. By living the kind of lives that we were created to live. 
This, by the way, Jesus says, he tells us uh, in this passage, that I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is not the kind of thing where he says, you need to, you need to do these things. You need to live this way um, because that's your punishment. That's what you get for having lived wrong before. No. He says, live this way because I've been living this way. And let me tell you, when you live this way, you actually experience a joy that you cannot find apart from this kind of life. What you experience when you go after the other things is frustration because you're not living the purpose that you were created for. But when you live this way, when you actually live in line with the purpose you were created for, you find a joy that is not anywhere else. And so he said, I'm telling you these things so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Keep that in mind. It may be an easy one to forget as we keep going. So if we're living this kind of life, if that's what it's about, which, by the way, he said, this is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, right? That's where we get that connection. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit. If the purpose of life is to glorify God, we do that by bearing fruit. So how do we bear fruit? By being Jesus' disciples. By being disciples of Jesus. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. You may remember in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are they're ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. And then he goes through the good tree and the good fruit and the bad tree and the bad, tree, bad fruit. And good tree cannot be bad fruit. Bad tree cannot be good fruit. By their fruit, you will recognize them. He says, When we bear fruit, that we show ourselves to be Jesus' disciples. Because that's the only way that you get to bear fruit is when we are Jesus' disciples. So what does it mean, then, to be a disciple? We're kind of going through these questions in order. And to be Jesus' disciple means to be his follower, but it means to remain in him. To remain in him and his love. I don't know if you were counting how many times in this passage Jesus says, remain in me, remain in me, remain in my love. He's pleading with them. You will have all sorts of opportunities and temptations to, well, maybe I'll just go this other way for... No. Stay. Stay in me. You're not going to find anything worth finding outside of me. Nothing that will last can you do outside of me. Stay in me. Remain in me. Remain in my love. It's just as uh, Jesus is the vine and we are the branches We cannot bear any fruit apart from him. Not any fruit that lasts. And so we can't glorify God by living apart from Jesus and just trying really hard. If we're living apart from Jesus and trying really hard, it's as foolish as the branch I showed the kids earlier, apart from the tree, trying to grow leaves on its own really hard. You can't try your way into it. Because you don't have what you need in coming into you. In the Jesus Storybook Bible, talking about the gospel, the author says, the gospel is not about trying, it's about trusting. It's a good nugget of a line right there. It's not about trying, it's about trusting. And so we stay connected with Jesus. He is the source of what we need. 
love our bulletin cover as well. I'm a bit bothered by the grammar, but I like what it says. Only connected to Christ, we have life. Only connected to Christ, we bear fruit. Um, it's not about trying. It's about trusting, staying in him, remaining in him, remaining in his love. You say, okay, well, that's great. But you mention all the times that, uh, that Jesus says, remain in me, but I sort of skipped over all the parts where he says, do what I command, right? Because he sure had a lot in there about doing the commands, obeying the commands. In fact, let me just point out a few of them so you know I'm not skipping over them or ignoring them. In verse 10, he said, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Hmm. Almost sounds like that's how you remain in his love, is by keeping his commands. Maybe so. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command. In the previous chapter, same conversation with his disciples. 14, 15, he says, if you love me, keep my commands. Verse 21, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Verse 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Like, wow, this is a whole lot of Jesus saying you need to obey what I'm telling you. And in fact, it shouldn't come as a surprise to us. It might have to them. Probably not. But to us, we know even the Great Commission, after he's raised from the dead and he gathers his disciples together and says, okay, now here's your job description. I want you to go into all the world. You guys know this. We say it a lot. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, if Jesus is not with us, we can't do any of the first things, right? So that's why that part is there. He's risen, and it's because of that that we can do any of this. But he tells us two ways that we make disciples. One is by baptizing, but it's not just baptizing and then, well, that's it, check that off, we're done. It's bapti- You make disciples by baptizing them into the fellowship, into Jesus, and then teaching them to obey everything he's commanded. So that's an awful lot of Obey what I command, obey what I command, obey what I command. And you're thinking, well, now this kind of sounds like Moses again. Or we just have a lot of laws, and it's all about rules. and It's, all... but it's not all about rules. In fact, when we start looking at what commands he keeps talking about, let's look at that a little closer. In verse 12, he says, my command is this. He's pretty explicit about it. My command is this. He doesn't say, by the way, my command is you need to pray this many times a day. You need to give this percentage of your money to the poor. You need to, et cetera, et cetera. That's not his command. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. And he comes back and repeats it again in verse 17 and says, this is my command, just in case you missed it the first time. This is my command. Love each other. This is it. This is what it's all about. This is what we were seeing in 1 John chapter 4. We can't claim that we love God if we don't love each other. That if we actually have received the love of Jesus into our lives and we're being changed more and more into his likeness, then it will, like a branch connected to a vine, that's what comes out. The fruit of our lives is the love that, uh, that we have for other people. 
He actually said this two chapters earlier, the same conversation with him. He says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Not, everyone will know that you're my disciple if you go to church every Sunday. Not, everyone will know that you're my disciple if you put a fish on, your, on the back of your car. Not, everyone will know that you're my disciple if you make sure that you pray before meals at a restaurant. Not, everyone will know that you're my disciple if you, etc., etc., etc. Everyone will know that you're my disciple if you love one another. Because it's only when we love each other, like Jesus loves us, that we show that we're connected to the vine. That's where that comes from. And in fact, when we talk about bearing fruit, what kind of fruit is this? What does it mean to live the kind of life that we were designed to live? Well, he says that um, this is to my Father's glory that you love, or this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples, right? That the way that we show that we're his disciples is we bear fruit. Well, he says that the way that people will know that we are his disciples is when we love one another. In other words, the bearing fruit is the loving each other. And we can do all sorts of religious things, but if we are not remaining in Jesus and, there, and because of remaining in his love and because of that, loving each other, then we've still missed it. No matter how close we may feel like we are otherwise. And by the way, I'll just pause for a moment. As I say, this is a sermon that uh, I'm certainly preaching to myself before I preach it to anyone else. Because it's a sermon we all need to hear. And I do not feel like I am exempt or that I have gotten this anywhere close to right to this point in my life. Um, but it's not about trying. It's about trusting. So when I'm keep that clearly before us. And as we, as we continue then, unpause now. If we understand that the goal of life is to glorify God, and we glorify God by bearing fruit, and that bearing fruit only comes by being a disciple, which means remaining in Jesus and remaining in his love, and therefore loving each other. That's the bearing fruit that glorifies God. Do we get to define what love is? And I hope that you already know instinctively, of course we don't. We don't get to say who Jesus is. He gets to tell us that. And we don't get to say what it means to love each other. He gets to tell us that too. And the way that he tells us that we are to love each other is he says, you are to love, uh, he says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And then he follows it up and says, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. To lay down one's life for one's friends. This is what it means to reflect who God is. To be those who uh, are gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and full of love. To be giving and sacrificial. Now, you may be tempted, though, at this point, when he says, um, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Aha, I found a loophole. We don't have to do this for everybody. We just have to do it for our friends. So all I need to do now is define who my friends are and just sacrificially love them, but everybody else, too bad for them. But no, 
We can't go there because that is the exact kind of uh, narrowing and trying to escape obedience on a technicality that got the expert in the law asking Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Yeah, I know I'm supposed to love my neighbor. Who's my neighbor? So before we start saying, yeah, I know I'm supposed to lay down my life for my friends, but who are my friends? I remember Jesus' response to him was the parable of the Good Samaritan. And if you need a refresher on that, you can look it up in Luke chapter 10. And that's probably why Jesus was so, so explicit in other places. To not just say, lay down your life for your friends. But he said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why are we to love even our enemies? And it's because the love that we are to have, because we are connected to Jesus, is not the same kind of love that the rest of the world has. The kind of love that says, well, if you're good to me first, then I'll be good to you back. If you're kind to me, then I will be kind to you. If you love me, then I will love you. But the kind of love that Jesus has for us is while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That he gave of himself and gave what was so important for our good when we didn't deserve it. And he said, if you want to be connected to me, that's the kind of love I have for you. That's the kind of love you must have as my disciples for each other. That we will give of what's important to us sacrificially for the good of others. Not to earn points on our religious scorecard. Not I'm going to do this you know, for anything to earn or pay back somehow. No. It's because this is the way Jesus has loved me when I didn't deserve it that I love other people for their good. And I sacrifice for their good. In other words, to live the lives we were meant to live, lives that glorify God, in which we, and we kind of sum it up here, in which we actually find the greatest joy, lives that bear fruit that will last, we must trust completely in Jesus. We must trust completely in Jesus, depending on him to know the purpose of our lives better than we can figure it ourselves, depending on him to guide us on our way and to strengthen us for the tasks ahead, and depending on him to change us to be more like him as we obey his repeated and urgent command to love each other. Maybe by teaching a class of unruly students about Jesus, instead of watching a favorite show at home. Maybe by giving a week of time and lots of energy, leading kids on a mission trip instead of continuing the regular weekly routine. Maybe by looking into fostering or adopting children in need instead of hoping that someone else will deal with the problem. Maybe by meeting regularly with people who need fellowship and encouragement instead of getting an extra hour or two of sleep or work or play, etc., Maybe by helping a neighbor to feed their family instead of padding a 401k. Maybe by saying a kind word in response instead of saying the first thing that comes to mind. Maybe by giving up something important for us for the good of someone else. This is not about earning anything. This is not about paying anything back. It's all about living the life that we were created to live as we follow Jesus on the way of the cross. Because whoever wants to be my disciple 
must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. And so as we follow Jesus on the way of the cross, we trust him, we remain in him, understanding that we are branches, but he is the vine. Any of this that we are able to do at all, we have to say it comes all from him and not from us. And by the way, on that list of things I just gave by way of example, instead of doing this, do that, or doing that, doing this instead of doing that, yeah, that's what it was. All those doing that's, I want you to know, we have every right to do those things. It's not that those are bad things. And it's not that we should look down on anybody who chooses to do those things. We have every right to do them. But, and here's, this really is a conclusion now. But if we want to know the joy of discipleship, if we want to know the joy of discipleship, we must begin by following Jesus on the way of the cross and laying down our rights and even our lives to the point of death, if necessary, for the good of others. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.